In this episode of Gareth Jones on Speed, I drive a car with possibly the rudest name yet. Hello, welcome to Gareth Jones on Speed. I am Gareth, but you knew that already because you probably subscribe to the show. And if you subscribe to the show, you know I spend a lot of time driving between London and Wales. And yes, I'm doing it yet again in this episode in a car that comes in under the radar. I'll explain what I mean in a moment, but the car is a car with a very rude name, like I said, the Audi TT RS, or if you like, the Audi Titty Arse. Sorry about that. What is it about coupes that have slightly rude names? Do you remember the Peugeot rip-off of the TT. I think we can say that. You know, we're all grown-ups here, because it was a bit more like a TT than someone who just came up with the idea of a car on their own, really, it was. Uh, and it was a very lovely version as well, actually. The Peugeot RCZ. RC. RC. It's a rude name, see? RCZ. I like that car, by the way. And this car, the Audi TTRS, the Titty Arse, what, 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 is it because coupes are sexy that's why they get rude names they don't need to titillate with their names do they if they're sexy but RS is sexy Audi have been using RS on their cars for some time now what was the first RS was it an Audi 80 RS was that the first one where it went all Zuffenhausen rather than Inglostadt and that relationship between Audi and Porsche is quite strong, isn't it? Because the TT was when Audi ventured into Porsche territory, if you think about it. That's what they did. You've got to admire Audi. Haven't they done well? Haven't they done well? Haven't they done well over... Let's have a think now. When did Audi first come on my radar? Probably about 1974, perhaps? Those first Audis in Britain were slightly mysterious, weren't they? Because VAG, Volkswagen AG, they picked the name Audi sort of out of their back catalogue, out of their, haven't used that for a while. It's a bit like putting on an old jacket that you'd had for 20 years that you haven't worn. You thought, no, oh, it's been so long, it's come back in fashion. That does happen when you're older, believe me. And that's what Volkswagen did. They resurrected the Audi name and used the Auto Union rings. Slightly complex, because Audi was only one of the four companies who made up Auto Union. And Auto Union cars, the other silver arrows, you might say, were, you know, fantastic Grand Prix cars in the 1930s. They had the four rings on, which meant Auto Union, not Audi. So, it's a bit like, in some ways, having, I don't know, an MG, but having the British Leyland logo. 
it's confusing, isn't it? Imagine the BL logo of the 70s with MG written in the middle instead of BL. That's effectively what the Audi rings is to the relationship between Auto Union and Audi. Anyway, as I was saying, you've got to admire Audi. They came in as unknowns and then targeted premium cars. I think that was the first thing they did. They pitched themselves above Volkswagen, of course. They had to. That was their whole purpose. So they were sort of targeting BMW. Now, this is at a time when if you wanted premium features on a car, you had to buy a premium car. For instance, you couldn't buy a Volkswagen or a Ford with all the top-end features. No, no. You had to buy a BMW or a Jaguar or a Mercedes. These were premium cars. And Audi said, right, we're going to be the premium Volkswagen brand. We're going to be the sporting premium Volkswagen brand, in fact, if you think about it. But they targeted premium first and then fettled their cars to create their own sort of equivalent of the M division at BMW with the RS variety of TTs and 80s and 8s and all that and then the other marvellous weapon is in their back catalogue now but they invented it of course late 70s early 80s 81 was it when Quattro appeared and we all went you're joking four wheel drive on a rally car that's just going to be heavy isn't it how wrong we were and how that Quattro technology became absolutely vital to Audi when they started producing very powerful cars. Instead of being very powerful front-wheel drive cars, they were very powerful rear-wheel drive cars with the traits that come with both of those drive methods. They went for four-wheel drive. Let's share all our power across all four wheels. Like, of course... Jensen proposed with the Ferguson Formula FF back in the very early 70s in fact late 60s possibly was it when was the Jensen FF I know the Interceptor was what 66 67 so the FF could only have been a couple of years later but they never really got on top of it did they but Audi made it their own they made it their brand didn't they Quattro and this TT is a quattro of course it says so on the dash lowercase quattro give me its full title it's an audi tt rs coupe 400 ps sport edition s tronic so you've probably worked out all the spec that it's got from that let's work backwards shall we s tronic robotized semi-manual semi-automatic transmission that's always in two gears and you just select one or the other I can override that by either pulling the joystick or joystick <laughs> the gear stick forward and backwards if I want or paddles not giant paddles either little paddles that are attached to the wheel they, they uh, follow the wheel round rather than stay in position like some paddles on some cars do and therefore have to be giant like viking horns no these are little ones that stay with the wheels so you can always access them sport edition that probably means it's got some extra trim and stuff 
I know it's got uh, a number of driving modes. Let's have a look what they are. I select them via a nice button on the dash. Comfort, auto, dynamic, or individual. Like the sound of individual, that probably means I need to engage individual, go into the settings and set it up myself. But uh, at the moment I'm in comfort because I'm slippering along, that's a new word, slippering along at 68 miles per hour on the M1 going north to Wales. So I really don't need dynamic or sport just yet, but I'm sure I will when I get to Wales. I've got this car for a week, I'm spending a week in Wales, house sitting for a friend. So I'm at liberty to do what I will, which usually means some spirited driving around beautiful North Wales. Right, working backwards through the name, 400 PS. Yeah, 400 of your brake horsepowers. Now, I'm never certain with PS. Is it slightly less or slightly more than the brake horsepower that we band around? Anyway, it's 400 PS and 480 newton metres of torque. That's what I'm talking about. 480 newton metres of torque. It's a lot of torque, isn't it? From a five-cylinder turbocharged direct injection petrol engine 20 valve I suppose right do you remember when we used to make a point of telling people things yeah 20 valve 16 valve 24 valve we don't bother saying that anymore that was only a feature when we all drove 8 valve cars and switched to 16 valves do you remember that when 16 valve was a thing oh oh yeah 16 valve oh the S yeah yeah well this is an RS yeah I was pondering earlier on the way that at the moment we're adding electric drive to cars, you know, plug-in hybrid EVs and mild hybrids to recover your energy and give you a bit of performance. And at the moment, we always make a big deal of that. That's in the badging of the car. But I reckon within 10 years, it will have gone the way of 16-valve and 32-valve. That's just a given that a car will have some sort of electrical assistance, whether it be to smooth out a triple or to give you lower noise levels at start and finish, you know, you'll pull away an electric motor. That's what I think is the best idea. I've, I've said this before, I know. This car's got stop-start, that's fine. Pull up at lights, touch the throttle, it coughs and burps into action reasonably quickly, not perhaps as quick as you might like, and then pulls away on the petrol motor. And I think you'd be much better off using an electric motor for that that's really what you should do electric motor for that um, that would make things quieter because then you bump start when the motor kicks in rather than cost start get the whole thing going but hey this is how this car is configured and many cars are configured that way and that's okay it works pretty well but I think there is a better system of the electric motor pull away in a hybrid car what does this thing look like well on the outside it's under the radar, like I said, it's what they call Daytona grey, which is sort of a gunmetal grey, but on the very dark side of grey, not like a sky grey like some cars are. I'm just trimming the speed, we've just hit a 60 mile per hour section of the M1 going north and I'm learning my way around the 
cruise control at the moment I don't detect the ability to set a distance to the car in front of me which is just cruise not adaptive cruise unless I'm misunderstanding something and as ever I've jumped in this car without having a chance to read the manual and get familiar with it before I drive it so apologies for that but I've got it for a week so sometimes it's nice to get in the car and just get an instinctive reaction how intuitive is this car what do I need to look up to find out to operate it or is everything to hand and really obvious and clear two things that I discovered quite easily and I was very pleased about that number one I was just listening to some very loud very loud music oh very loud music on the sound system the Bang and Olufsen sound system and I thought, well, I want to mute that. Uh, okay, there's a volume button, there's a nav button, oh, there's a star underneath it. I bet that mutes the audio. Boom. Mutes the audio. That's what you want, you know, intuitive. You don't have to be searching through a thousand menus to find things. Similarly, I was also able to set the trip computer very easily, which is something I struggle in some cars. Two buttons, vehicle, okay. Oh, it's got short-term memory and long-term memory. Okay, boom, short-term memory zero so that was nice and easy and so full marks to VW, Audi I mustn't say VW, Audi for doing this because I'm sure they operate very independently given the parts that they've developed to work across a number of VW brands you know, Skoda and Seat including but interestingly the new ID brand I don't think that shares any chassis stuff, does it, with Audi, Volkswagen, Seat and Skoda. That's something in its own universe, but I would imagine that will be pulled in over time. There will spearhead technologies in the ID brand that will appear, perhaps already are appearing in the, uh, what's it called? The e-tron. Hey, yeah, there's another thing, e-tron. What is it about Audi and rude names? Isn't e-tron? French or Etron French for piece of poo turd I think it is I'm sure everybody mentions that when they say Etron or Etron must get over that right get, get your mind out of the toilet Jones get your mind out of the backside let's talk about the car my backside is very comfortable by the way sitting in these red leather seats with red sports stitching kind of a hexagonal polygon of a pattern on the seats that sort of echo the Audi grille so the outside of the car is low sporting technical and I said under the radar you know we often think of high performance cars you think oh yeah Porsche AMG but do you think of Audis, the Audi TT, you know, it's sort of so ubiquitous now. It's been around for such a long time that we don't give it the attention it deserves. It was a breakthrough when it appeared. This was a very strong statement, wasn't it, from Audi saying that they were moving into Porsche territory. And it had what I think everybody at the time described as Bauhaus styling. And by that, I don't mean it looked like Pete Murphy from the 80s goth band Bauhaus in that it was a very pale complexion and had black hair but no it sort of evoked styling of the 1930s perhaps that we saw on cars like the Auto Union racing cars Grand Prix cars 
it was able to evoke that in its silverness and its compound curves, its simple curves actually, if you think about the rear end of the Audi TT concept when it came out, and then when the road version of the TT came out, it actually looked better than the Audi TT concept, and it even kept that visible fuel cap thing which hadn't happened, if I remember, in any car before then for a long while. That was it. That sporting look to a fuel cap rather than just hiding it underneath a piece of bodywork. Innovative stuff, styling stuff, which sort of screamed sport, sport, sport. This car, of course, has that. And huge Brembo brakes. It's got an additional brake colouring pack, RS-style package on the outside which is 175 and 340 something for the coloured Brembo brakes which are visible through the 20 inch wheels. Bright red, they're massive. So it really is doing its best to shout out. But I was driving through London a few minutes ago and there were two kids on bikes, only little ones. I'd say they were about six, seven years old and I had the window open because I hadn't turned the AC on yet. I was enjoying some London Air had the window open and as I drove past the two kids shouted Audi R8 Audi R8 Audi R8 now I didn't have the heart to stop and say to them no it's not an R8 it's the R8's little brother the TTRS but of course there's an awful lot of family kin they're brothers those cars they do look alike it does look a bit more Audi R8-ish than the original TT does and this, of course, is the third generation of the TT now. And possibly the last generation of the TT. What Audi choose to replace this car with in the future will be a very different beast. But more on that later. Right. Here I am. Some hour and a quarter into my journey up to North Wales, getting familiar with the car on the inside and the outside in the handling. First thing I noticed, the very first thing I noticed, was when I turned right out of my road, was how much it rotates around a very short wheelbase. I was going to say how quick the turn-in is, but it's more than that, because it's such a short wheelbase, this car. It's based on the Golf platform. Is it, they call it the MQB platform. It's based on the same platform as the Golf, which is quite short. And when I turned in, quite a high rate of steering. Oh, little back end just nipped round to meet me there. Oh, nice, yes. And then I noticed the short wheelbase on the motorway. There was a quicker section earlier on. I did a bit of lane changing, and it was, oh, that's a bit flighty. I wouldn't say it was unstable, but quicker to change direction than I was anticipating combination of steering speed rate and short wheelbase I suppose which would be very nice for some of the wigglier roads in North Wales when I get there on the inside this car is lovely suede panels in the steering wheel that's flat bottomed big RS logo big four rings in the centre nice big clear buttons that say drive select and engine start stop but I struggled when I first got in the car to find uh, the nav I thought oh I want to enter the navigation how do I do that because there is no second media screen in the middle of the dashboard 
it's just those, well, three of the five air vents that dominate the dashboard. Air vents that look like high bypass gas turbine engines, but with a red ring around them, a red circumference. Oh, they're dramatic. You know what I mean by high bypass, don't you? Jet engines sort of come in two varieties overall, I suppose. The turbojet, which we associate with the development of the jet engine in the 1940s and 1950s, and they were long tubes like cigars, weren't they? And they went from a slightly narrower aperture at the front to a wider diameter in the middle, then took a long time to taper back to another narrow aperture for the exhaust. And they had all the fans, the compressors and turbines inside, didn't they? But then high bypass gas turbine engines, which you get on most airliners of course you look at them you've got that sort of cigar shaped gas turbine engine a bit stubbier than they were when they first arrived but then stuck on the front in a ruddy great cowling a massive fan a massive set of turbines far greater probably almost double the diameter of the gas turbine itself high bypass awful lot of stuff gets blown out the back big fans and looking at the air vents on this car, five of them on the dash, five! They look just like high bypass gas turbines with how many strakes, how many blades? Let's have a look. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twenty. Twenty blades, dramatic looking, very nice. Yeah, I'm liking it. They, it's comfy. I've had no trouble getting comfortable straight away. And that can be a concern with a coupe. As you know, I've got long gorilla slash gibbon arms and shortish legs. I'm sort of built Italianate, as they say, which is why my old Lancia always suited me. And this car, I have to say, has allowed me to get the leg length right and the seat brake right so I'm comfortable on the steering wheel well, well done in a coupe nice low roof of course I'm peeking out through a narrow sporting windshield yeah it's a proper sports car low windows at the side low profile you know hard to see in one of these you keep a low profile so continuing that low profile theme the Audi TT is quite low profile it's in Daytona grey that's low profile it's got low window height that's low profile yeah and a five cylinder engine you don't see them anymore do you eh who is it made five cylinders Volvo Audi can't think of anyone else Ford used Volvo's five cylinder didn't they can't get it anymore so this is the last of the fives what is it they used to say about five cylinders all the disadvantages of a four with the drawbacks of a six <laughs> no no allegedly all the advantages in power of a v6 but with the compactness and lack of thirst of a four somewhere in between the two a straight five i spent some time couple of weeks ago with my great friend Alex uh, who's an engineer but doesn't really know about cars and I was explaining to Alex why Le Mans was so exciting 
and he looked at me after I explained for a few minutes and said oh I get it it's an engineering challenge thing like the egg race yes it's like the great egg race build a car that could go almost flat out or flat out if you can for 24 hours using whatever technology within reason that you want to use that will give you efficiency reliability and the performance that you need he liked that yeah I explained that diesels are welcome hybrids were welcome diesel hybrids v4 petrol and, and at that point he said wait hang on can you explain the difference between a v8 and a four-cylinder engine for me because no one had ever told him this he's sort of an electronics engineer he doesn't know about mechanics so I explained how um, I started from first principles that a single-cylinder engine is basically a cannonball in a cannon but you close off the end right and uh, and you connect the cannonball to a piston which is connected to a rotating rod and that gives you translation from an up-down movement to a rotary movement, which drives wheels. Right, got that. Then you start gathering pistons together. You can have two of them, one behind the other. You can have one opposite. You can have one at 90 degrees, the other one for a V2 if you want. Ah, I get it, he said. Right, V2. So a V8 is like four V2s. Yeah, he suddenly understood. I got some cans of Guinness out, because we were in the park drinking Guinness at the time, and I laid out cans of Guinness for him in various formations, pointing out how a V configuration, a straight configuration, and a flat boxer engine works, and what the advantages are of lower centre of gravity, greater torque, more vibration perhaps from a flat four, and how you have to counterbalance things. We had a really good conversation about multi-cylinder engines, how they connect to the crank, you know. V8s connected every one-eighth of that 360 degrees, so you could do the calculation of where they are. And I got on to explain that they could be asymmetric, and you could in fact have a three-cylinder engine now, and how you damp those vibrations out with a hybrid drive as well. And he, oh, yeah, right, then the more cylinders you get, the smoother it is. He was working it all out from first principles. It was great. But I didn't mention the five-cylinder engine. I was about to, but we went on to talk about other things. We got into a long conversation about energy recovery at that point. But the idea that you can have a five-cylinder engine is sort of counterintuitive, isn't it? Until you think about it, just connect those five cylinders at five equal points around the 360 degrees of the crank, and you'll get smoothness more than a four, less than a six, significantly less than an eight, and massively less than a 12. Oh, I did then try and explain the configuration of a W16 for him. Now, it's basically two V8s joined at the hip. And yeah, that was it. Yeah, next time I see Alex, I will tell him about five-cylinder engine. But have there ever been seven-cylinder engines? You may know. I'm going to look into this. Or even a nine-cylinder? I bet there was a nine-cylinder aero engine. I bet there was in a fighter aircraft. But I wonder if we ever had a nine-cylinder car engine. But for now, five is the odd number i like that oddball number right i've come to a stop now can you hear complete silence yeah traffic london august oh it's normal and when it gets going again i'm going to try the various modes i might even set up my individual mode on the drive i wonder what that offers me i wonder oh i just turned it on and went to dynamic by mistake didn't mean to do that let's go back to comfort
Right, good, yes. The Audi TT RS. Heck of a car. I'm going to a heck of a country and do some heck of a driving in it. I'll tell you about it when that's happened. And now another Gareth Jones on speed intermission in Wales segment. I've been in Wales uh, ooh, five days or something now. Look after my friend Stephen Kim's place in Rill. And I'm on the seafront. And most days I wake up to the sound of seagulls. And there were some seagulls. Right on cue. There are two very noisy seagulls who like to sit on the roof of the house opposite. And it's a lovely sound to wake up to. It's now half past one in the afternoon. I haven't just woken up. And the seagulls are still calling. So there you go. The sound of rill. End of intermission. Whilst I've been in Rill, I've been exploring the neighbourhood, not just in this car, but also on foot and on bike as well. Yesterday, I cycled from inland Rill out to the coast and along the coast all the way across the Denbyshire Flintshire border to Flint and then got a train back because I'd done about 30 miles by the end of it. And then previously I climbed Moyle Vamai, the highest mountain we have in this part of North Wales, on an incredibly clear day where you could see Liverpool, you could see large swathe of Snowdonia, and you could even see Blackpool in the distance, although we couldn't make out the tower, but it was gorgeous. But also been exploring this car, getting to know it as I rocket around many of the back roads. And yeah, it's good. It's good. Oh, oh, it's good. If you find yourself with an open road and you want to ping past someone, it takes a second to do that. You've got to make sure you're in the right gear. And then uh, I'm actually changing manually as we speak and swapping hands of the recording device shouldn't be doing that it takes a second just to sort of gather up its trousers and go it's not instantaneous but there's loads of it and it keeps coming it just keeps coming and coming and coming and I found on a couple of occasions when I was just sort of pinging past somebody who was dawdling let's say in an open road and you find yourself, as you've passed them, going far quicker than you might have imagined you need to be, if you see what I mean. And that was impressive. It's a car which just keeps pulling, you know. It in some ways reminds me of the land speed record auto unions and the, the high-performance auto unions of the 1930s. That sort of immense pulling power. They just keep going, keep going, keep going. And this car does that. The engine, it's got a sound button on it, so you can choose normal or sport. Now, here's the thing. Is it electronic or is it real? Therefore, does it matter? I'm going up the hill through St. Asif at the moment. And once I'm clear and I've got a bit of open road, I'll uh, press some buttons and choose the sound. Right, we're on sport engine sound now. 
go round and round about and see if you can hear the difference. Yeah, a slight sort of WRC warble. There, do you hear that? Kind of nice. Kind of nice. Okay, let's tone it down to normal. Standard sport. Okay, they call it standard. Okay, let's try and do a similar thing. Let the car ahead get away from me and let's hear the throttle. Hmm. Difficult to make a direct comparison because I went down a couple of gears there. But yeah, it makes a chirpy little fruity sound, particularly under warm-up. I do like a car which makes a bit of noise under warm-up. I'm getting this right, getting this right, getting this right. That's the sort of car I like, I really do. I'm trying to think of any downsides to this car. I can think of two. I'm just going to close the window. I can think of two, and they're really minor, and it's got nothing to do with performance and handling. It's ergonomics. The first one is that if you engage reverse, the camera display for the reversing camera is, of course, on the main LCD screen behind the wheel, which turns over from its usual display of navigation and revs and speed. And the consequence of that is, because it's behind the steering wheel, you can't see it if you've got any lock on. So if you're parallel parking, pulling into a gap, as soon as the steering wheel gets, you know, 30%, 40% away from center, it obliterates the rear view. So there's the case for a separate screen in this car. I didn't quite finish a thought at the starter program where I was talking about how the air vents dominate the view of this car. There are five, one for the passenger, one for the driver, and three in the center. And they're very clever because each of the center of those vents is a button that activates things like seat heating in the far left and far right, temperature control in the dead center, AC on and off in the left-hand center one, and recirculation or where the air goes, the direction on the right-hand one. Kind of nice, efficient way of using buttons. I do like that. But the consequence of having five vents is there is no center digital screen which you can look at when reversing. The only other downside on this car that I can recall spotting over the week is uh, it was a bit rainy at one point. I'm not blaming that on the car. I was in real. It was August. But the downside was when I opened up the boot, the drainage around the lift back, the hatch at the rear, seemed to just pour water into the boot. I thought, wow, that's not well thought through. However, I'm sure if you own this car, you learn to open the boot gently and that gives the water a chance to flow down the right channels and away from your boot so if you want a dry boot open your boot carefully on an Audi TT RS that's my advice the sound system <laughs> I did say bang and Olufsen and it has got plenty of bang this Olufsen it's great that bang and Olufsen are still sort of around as a desirable brand they were when I was a teen, you know, never had one, but I had friends who had them, and they all had different size jack sockets. When everyone was using 2.5 mil or 3.5 mil, Bang & Olufsen would be using, uh, I don't know, 
2.79 mil or something that they made up deliberately. But they were very good, very famous for a clarity of sound. And the sound system in this car is absolutely belting. And I don't think it's an optional media system. I think it's the one that's the stock in the TTRS. Um, what music does it particularly like? It particularly likes 1979 music. Messages by Orchestra Maneuvers in the Dark. That was one of the finest musical moments in this car that just lifted me. And I think it was that resonant quality of the car, piece of music that suits not only the mood I'm in at the time, perhaps, but also the sound system of the car. Maybe. There's always a standout song, and it's OMD this time. Now, we're on the bit that everyone calls the drag strip here in... Uh, North Wales, between Trevenant and Bodfari, there's an unusually straight bit of road, and it's usually used as a, a strip where teenagers drive hilariously, and I drove a little spiritedly there to get up to 60, to just see if this thing is ready to go, and change down, boof, it's ready to go. It's a car you have to drive, it's a car that you have to use the paddles to get the most of, can drive it around like a lazy boy if you want but you won't get the best from it you know treat it as a sports car it's designed to be a sports car it's an Audi TT RS the RS means Rennsport which is German for racing sport and therefore must be driven like that there are cars which have multiple personalities you can either do it on the drive mode on the dash or you can do it in the way that you drive it or it's just automatic, it does that. This car has multiple personalities, but you have to engage them manually, you might say. I haven't found the perfect suspension setting, dynamic, auto, individual, normal. It's all a little bit bouncy. It doesn't control float and bounce as well as a Lotus Evora 430 does. It doesn't deliver the power quite as well as a Lotus Evora 430 does. But there again, that is a V6, so this is a straight from wave. But it's an awful lot cheaper. This car is, what, £63,000? I mean, you can get a very well-specced Cayman S for that kind of money. But you probably, I don't know, it's a culture thing, isn't it? Do I want a Porsche? It's quite a big statement. An Audi is a considered statement. And it is more powerful than the Cayman S, I think. And possibly more stable in the wet because of its Haldex Quattro drive. So there are lots of good reasons for buying this car. And if, like me, you come to North Wales a lot, yeah, this, this would do it nicely. You can't see over hedges, obviously, with the letterbox height, side glass and front glass. And you get that from an SUV, of course. That's why a lot of people like to drive SUVs in the countryside, so you can see over hedges. I'm down amongst them and going quickly and enjoying every minute of it. TTRS, ever so good. Right then, a bit of a conclusion about the Audi TT RS as I drive back from my home, 
which is North Wales, to where I live, which is London. I'm on the M6. And you know what? Please don't take this as damning with faint praise, but the Audi TTRS is a great motorway cruiser. It's a GT car. I think rather than a sports car, there's no doubt that the levels of grip match the performance of this extraordinary engine. And yet this car is more about the engine than it is about the handling. I love the way it turns in. It's such a short wheelbase. It's great for B-roads in North Wales. It, It does that change of direction thing so very well despite the fact that the engine is in the front but of course it's got all the mass down low it cut the top off a Golf or an Audi A3 and put it all low so if you're looking for a sporting car experience the TTRS definitely has it there's no doubt that it has exemplary credentials for being able to be steered around at uh, what Star Trek called unreasonable velocities it's really great at that and you know if you want the practicality of something that's got a boot and you don't have to put up with an engine in the middle then you get the refinement of having the engine up front as well in this car so it certainly meets a need it's somebody who wants a sports car but doesn't want a sports car do you know what I mean by that it's easy to get in and out of there are no great sills and it's got an extraordinary ability to hang on there. Audi's superb quattro system. It's been a bit wet while I've been up here, and not once have I ever felt this car break away at all. There was one very quick roundabout where I felt a bit of scrubbing on the front end, which is unusual because it's, it's a bit pointy, this guy. It's like... Michael Schumacher's Benetton in 1994-95. It's all about the front end. Really pointy. Turns in, the rest of the car just follows suit because it's so short. And yet there was one occasion where I was hammering it round a roundabout and I could feel the whole car just slightly scrubbing but staying perfectly predictable. Ever so good. One of the things I admire about the Audi TT is that it hasn't grown portly over its three generations. It's still a short, little car. It's a little wider than it was originally, but not very much. And it's just snickety-nickety. It's really good at that sort of thing. This car does a lot of things well. It grips, it accelerates, it looks great, it brakes phenomenally, it's stable. It's an engineering masterpiece, but what it isn't is a very well thought through bit of ergonomics. I find the switch gear on the steering wheel all over the place. There are better solutions than the roller dials and the engage buttons on this. I'm sure if you've driven a Golf or anything else from VAG, you'll be familiar with how these things work, but I found them less than intuitive. Trying to enter addresses in the sat-nav is a slow process as you roll through 50 characters like a sequential gearbox. You've got to go through every gear to get to the top one, you know. There are easier systems 
than that with a QWERTY layout and stuff like that. So that aside, you know, I was forever trying to enter an address and then you hit what is logically the enter button and it, oh, it puts in another character or, oh, it exits you out of the address and you've got to start all over again. No, no, there are better ways of doing that. I'm sure familiarity would fix all those things but you want a car that's intuitive that you get in and go yeah right okay I know how that works it's not brilliantly logical it all works but it could be easier I do love the way that the screen is configured on this car the dashboard the way that you can what appears to be almost infinitesimally change the layout by pressing one of the innumerable buttons on the steering wheel where you can have the speedo and the tachometer massive or you move them small and have all the other information like your driver assist on there or your navigation it really is a joy actually arguably too complex you've got so many variables you can't even remember oh how do i actually like it set best of all i can't quite remember but Again, that's something that would come with familiarity. So this is a car that I think that you would learn to live with, that you would live with. It's a car for long-term ownership, not for someone who just jumps in and goes. There's so much about this car that needs trimming. Like I said about trying to find the right setting for the car, you know, comfort, dynamic, individual, auto, I don't really know which one of those is best. I don't think it makes a big difference, that button on the car. If I perhaps fiddled with the individual settings, I might find something that suited my desires perfectly. But I have driven other cars where that button makes a bigger difference, and this doesn't seem to make a huge difference. Here's a good question. What's this car's party trick, or... Perhaps, what's your car's party trick? If ever you turn up with a new car and you meet some friends and they ask, oh, what's it like, what does it do? What are the, I suppose, surprise and delight features that that car have? What are they? What do you show people? This car's got three things. Number one, its ability to go round roundabouts like a crap. It really is low and hunkered down and will outgrip out anything on most roundabouts, I'm pretty sure, largely thanks to Quattro. The other thing is it's utter straight-line acceleration that just keeps going, just keeps going. It's limited to 155, or I think it will probably top 174 or something like that if it was ungoverned. And then the final party trick is the, uh, what do they call it? that lighting trick that they have in the doors of a car so when you open up the door in pitch black countryside wells at night it shines a light on the floor they call it theater lighting so you can see any puddles that you may want to avoid stepping in if you're in rural wales but it doesn't just light up the puddle it writes the word audi sport displays the word Audi Sport in lights on the ground with the Audi RS logo as well, a bit of theatrics that's the party 
package that you get from this car. Oh my gosh, it hangs on. Oh my gosh, I've been thrust into the back seat. And oh my gosh, look at that. It's written on the ground what it is. <laughs> I'm going to talk about an image problem that the Audi TT RS has. I went over to my friend Carol and Steve's house and parked it outside their house while I visited them in the garden. And they got a text from their neighbour, their lovely neighbour Simon, who said, Oh, I see you've got a hairdresser staying. Would that person mind coming to cut my son's hair? With a wink and a smiley face. They knew it was me turning up in an interesting car. But had to say that they think the Audi TT has a reputation as a hairdresser's car. Really? I was slightly taken aback at that because there's no doubt that this TTRS is not a hairdresser's car. It's a very, very capable machine indeed. But do hairdressers like to buy lesser Audi TTs? I don't think there's a truth in that. I think that's a generalisation. And yet, last night, when I went to the Forth Derwen pub in Rill for a pint of Guinness in their garden, I got chatting to a lovely couple called Janet and Mark, and they asked me how I'd come up. I said, I drove. Oh, what car you've got? I explained. I had a car on loan from Audi. It was an Audi TT RS. Oh, we've got one of them, they said. Have you? Well, it's an Audi TT, but not an RS. You know, a hairdresser's car. <gasps> they both said it. Simon and Janet and Mark said it. Extraordinary. And I was genuinely taken aback, because for me, the TT doesn't have a reputation as a hairdresser's car. It's a car very much driven by women as much as men. I think lots of women like the Audi TT. And that is to be applauded. A car which, like certain Jaguars, has a pan-gender appeal, you might say. And I think that's quite a skill to design a car that does both those things. So, the Audi TT, this is it now. It's going to evolve into something completely new. Okay, let's make an educated guess on the future of the TT RS. The next generation car will do away with the five-cylinder turbo and will probably have a four-cylinder turbo hybrid electrically assisted plug-in drive. Yeah, that's what they'll do, won't they? They'll gain that extra efficiency and extra performance from a plug-in hybrid technology, which will make the car heavier but hopefully retain the sort of performance this car has, which with 400 PS truly is quite something. And, you know, it's good value, this car. Well-built, good value. Built in Hungary, that's one possible future. The other one is a pure electric TT. Knowing Audi, they'll probably make both, won't they? Because generally that's how it's going at the moment. You can have your pure electric car as a halo car, but the vast majority of people will choose a plug-in hybrid. So they've got the worst of both worlds, you might say. They've got the range when they need it, but also got the electric ability for when they're using it most of the time. But what this version of the TT is, in my opinion, with its styling, which has stayed true to the original TT concept, 
is a futuristic vision of a car from the past. Think about it. Auto Union evokes images of the 1930s, a very futuristic time when there were great leaps in technology and engineering. And this car, something about the rear three-quarter always evokes that for me, an auto union. And a car from a period where performance came from, let's say, five cylinders instead of four or six with a turbocharger. These are what are now essentially older-fashioned ideas. Not old-fashioned ideas, but ideas that have been around a long time and have been well-proven and well-executed. And they're reasonably well executed in this car. That turbocharger gives you all the top-end power that you need. But at a slight cost, there is a turbo lag. And I'm imagining a hybrid version might even have an electrical-assisted turbo, an e-drive, or an e-turbo, I think they call it, don't they? Which might just pick up that slight delay in performance. But if you drive around that, and if you like driving, you learn to drive around the personality of any car that you're in, and very often an imperfect car with a personality, foibles, an engineering type that you need to work with can be more rewarding than something that is simply plug and play, get in, press a button, go. And I like that about this car. It is an involving car. The more that you put in it, the more you get out of it, like anything in life, really. What this car is, as I've said, is a vision of the future as it looked in the past. And as we all know, the future always looked better in the past than it does now. As we live in uncertain times, the vision of the future from the 1930s was a good one. I hope you're all well and safe and hope you've enjoyed this episode of Gareth Jones on Speed as much as I've enjoyed the Audi TT RS, which gets a highly appreciated rating from this programme. I was Gareth. I'll see you soon. Ta-da! To send us an email, see pictures, get song lyrics, join our Facebook fan site, follow us on Twitter, or to find out about sponsorship opportunities, go to garethjones.tv. Gareth Jones on Speed is made in London by Whizbang. Gareth Jones on Speed! Speed!